Thanks, Pastor Brian. Hey, everybody. Happy early new year. Um, a couple of housekeeping things for me. One, Alec, you've got uh, the recording going? Beautiful. Alec Worthington on the ones and twos tonight. Thanks, brother. And Brad Gibson on the computer. <laughs> I feel like the band leader who's like, and on the drums, Brad, and the bass. Um, and then the other thing, I just want you to know, we got, I know last week the heaters might not have been turned on in the cry rooms on the side. I made sure they were on tonight, all right? So it's nice and toasty if any moms want to take advantage of those rooms on the side. Uh, and, oh, sermon notebooks on the back, too, for any older kids that are in the sermon that want to um, take a look at those sermon notebooks. You know, we've been saying on the back of the bulletin that if you complete those notebook pages, you get to pick from the prize basket. But going into 2024, I'm going to change that and call the prize basket the treasure chest. So if you complete some sermon note pages, you get to choose from the treasure chest, which sounds way cooler. I know if I was a little bit younger, well, what am I talking about? I, I want to do it even though I'm old. So, hey, um, my microphone is a, a little echoey up here. So if you could be working on that some, Alec, that'd be great. Um, I am going to be reading tonight from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you could start turning in your Bibles that direction. We're doing something that I realized this week has become a bit of a tradition, at least for me. And that is post-Christmas sermon. We look at the wise men. We always tend to come back and look at the narrative of the wise men visiting baby Jesus. I think there's a personal reason for that, and I'm going to share with you guys in just a second. But if you've been with us at Vespers for a few years, you're probably like, haven't we done this in the past, like right past e or, uh, Christmas? Yes, we have. Um, and we're going back to it again. So if you would stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. God's word says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was be to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth this evening 
the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Father, let us handle your word carefully. Let us hear your voice in it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. And by the way, I'm glad to see y'all. And thank you for choosing to spend New Year's Eve with us here at Vespers to worship God together as we close out 2023 and look forward to the new year. So I told you a second ago that I had a theory on why it is that I always gravitate towards reading the wise men narrative right after Christmas. And it's this. I kind of had this weird obsession with the wise men as a kid. Like five, six, seven years old. I, and, and by obsession, I don't mean that I really liked them. I mean that I was really picky about where they showed up in the nativity scene. Somehow, some way, as a kid, I was told, I don't know if it was a Sunday school teacher or like a children's Bible I read, but I became privy to the information that the wise men were not actually at the manger when Jesus was born. And yet, I'm seeing all these nativity scenes, whether they are ornaments in people's houses or a live nativity scene at the church, and the wise men are there, and as a six-year-old, that really ticked me off. And in fact, every year, my family reminds me about how weird I was about this. Apparently, I was pretty chill and relaxed about a lot of things as a kid, but the wise men just really got under my skin. In fact, my mom told me that I used to, every year, we had this little sort of porcelain nativity scene, and I would take the wise men and put them in another room. <laughs> and I may or may not have done that at other people's houses, too, and they couldn't find their wise men. So... I, Maybe the reason that I subconsciously keep gravitating back towards, because it happens every year. There's sort of this lull between Christmas and New Year's. Our office is closed. That's why we don't have bulletins tonight. And I think like, oh, man, what do we want to preach about? You know, we're not in our Advent series anymore. We're not ready to jump back into our regular series in First Kings. Oh, let's talk about the wise men. I think subconsciously it's because I had this hang-up as a kid. And so this is a little bit of an homage to six-year-old Josh who would be very pleased that I'm not talking about the wise men on Christmas, but after, when they arrived. Now, I'm not saying they arrived a week after. It probably maybe was even a little bit longer than that. But we read in the text tonight that when they finally got to Bethlehem, they arrived in a home, in a house. And were able to bow down and worship the Messiah and the Christ child there. So, if any of you out there have that same hang-up about the wise men, hopefully... I'm appealing to you tonight. Now, as we sort of dig into this, I want to point out not only the misconception of the, the wise men, you know, not being in the nativity scene as we normally see them portrayed, but also there's some other kind of misinformation that I think gets spread around. In fact, we sang a little bit of misinformation tonight. Uh, Kevin would be mad at me because I requested the song We Three Kings because it's the one that's most on the nose for what we're talking about tonight. But the reality is, we don't know how many wise men there were. We always say three. We sing the song, We Three Kings. But the reality is, we're not sure. The text just simply says, wise men, plural. We don't know how many that means. Now, usually we get the number three because there are three gifts that are mentioned. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But, I don't know, maybe there were two wise men that were like carrying the jar of myrrh together. Or like gold's really heavy. Maybe it took a lot of them to carry the gold. Uh, who knows? 
All that to say, we don't know that for sure. We also don't know their names, even though some church traditions like to assign names to the different wise men. We don't even know where precisely they came from. Somebody was telling me a few weeks ago that they heard a sermon where the pastor was like, he had calculated the precise mileage that it would have taken for the wise men to get to Bethlehem. And they were like, is that right? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) The text doesn't say for certain. So maybe he's right, but maybe not. The only thing that we know about these guys is what we read in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. We know that they saw a star rising in the distance that got their attention and they traveled. They learned about the prophecy of the Christ child in Micah chapter 5. And then when they saw him, they knew that he was the light of the world, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And they bowed down and they worshiped him and they gave him those kingly gifts. Now, one thing that I will say that is kind of some background information that we know outside of this text is what kind of job these wise men had. Because really, this title, wise men, isn't just about their character. It's not meaning that, wow, these were really smart, wise guys. They might have been. But it actually is a very technical sort of job description. It's their career. That's why at this point in the sermon, I'm going to switch from calling them wise men to calling them a more technical term, the magi. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible, that's what we read from tonight, you're going to see a little footnote on wise men that says this in Greek is the term magi. And why that's important is because it makes us know that they had a very specific job that they did in the ancient world. These men were counselors to kings and emperors and rulers in the ancient Near East. They were courts, uh, basically elevated to some of the highest court positions to give guidance and sort of future prognostications to the kings that they served. And they did this in a handful of different ways. Sometimes it would come in the way of interpreting dreams. A king would have a dream and all of a sudden he would call on his magi to come and he would describe the the dream to them and they would tell him what it means and what he should do in response to that. In fact, we see this in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he has, in Greek, magi surrounded uh, in his court. Now, you're probably saying, Josh, the book of Daniel wasn't written in Greek. It's true, but we have a translation of it in Greek called the Septuagint and it's in that book that we see that term magi used for the people all around Nebuchadnezzar interpreting his dreams. Now, spoiler alert, if you haven't read this book, I can spoil it for you. Those magi could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but Daniel, the exile from Israel, could. It's a cool story. Check it out if you haven't read it before. But we see them in that context interpreting dreams. We also see them in some context interpreting the heavens, the celestial bodies to try to figure out the signs and the future. That's why sometimes magi is synonymous with astrologer. They were like royal astrologers searching the heavens to try to figure out what God was doing, what the fates were doing, and trying to give the king counsel in that vein. It kind of fits with what we saw tonight, right? How did the magi know about the Christ child born in the West. They saw it. They saw a star rising in the distance. They were acknowledging the heavens. We also see magi show up in another place in the scripture. Exodus, uh, 
Moses is called to come into the courtroom of the Pharaoh and give his famous ultimatum, let my people go. And accompanying that, that uh, ultimatum was all these signs and wonders that God was doing. In fact, many of them we term plagues. And after each plague that would come on the land of Egypt, there was a group of people, court magi in Pharaoh's court that were duplicating those plagues and trying to push back on the claims of Moses. So these magi, we see them in all these different contexts. They are astrologers, soothsayers, fortune tellers. They are men who seem to rely on the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. And that's important, and I'm pointing this all out to you so that you realize that up until this point of the Bible, every time we have encountered magi, we've encountered, quote-unquote, the bad guys. They're fortune tellers. They're uh, people practicing divination and astrology, things that God had forbidden in his law. They're people that are relying on the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. They are not who you would expect to see at the side of the Christ child. And yet here they are, occupying a central place in the story of Matthew. And in fact, it's King Herod in Israel that is the sinister one trying to root out the Christ child. But it's these magi, these quote-unquote bad guys, who find him and fall on their face and worship him. What I want to suggest to you is that a big focus of the story about the wise men, the magi, is that Matthew, the gospel writer, wants us to see that when Jesus the Messiah comes into the world, he takes people who are on the outside. He takes people that are alienated from God. He takes people that are on the margins, on the edge, and he invites them into the middle of the story. And that's where I'm getting my title from tonight. When Jesus arrives at Christmas, all of a sudden the quote-unquote outsiders are now invited to become insiders to him. That's what I'm seeing with these magi. Now the interesting thing about this is if the magi, these guys were here tonight listening to this sermon, would be, yeah, it would be weird if they're in Chico, California for some reason. They would not understand what I'm talking about when I'm calling them outsiders. They would not have thought of themselves as outsiders. They would have thought of themselves as the ultimate insiders. They are, remember, the, the court, royal court astrologers. They have been elevated to the highest position in their career. They have the ear of kings and emperors and rulers even though we might roll our eyes when somebody says fortune teller or soothsayer or astrologer, in the ancient world, that was the height of wisdom and culture and sophistication. They were at the top of their game. There's no sense in which they were outsiders in the world. But in God's story, the story of redemption and the story of the Bible, they are very much outsiders. First off, they're Gentiles. They're foreigners from a faraway country, far outside the boundaries of Israel and far outside God's promise and covenant and law. 
And then secondly, like we've just been talking about, they're astrologers and fortune tellers, something that was strictly forbidden in the Bible. You're not supposed to try to divine the future based on human means. You're supposed to trust God. They are misfits in the land of Israel. They're misfits in the story of redemption. But that is why this is so bizarre. That Jesus is drawing them, these guys, to come kneel their knee before him and worship at his side in some of the earliest moments of his life. Isn't that just wonderfully peculiar? And doesn't that mean that part of what Jesus is challenging us to do when we consider what's happening at Christmas is think about how him, how his arrival makes it so that people that are on the outside all of a sudden are invited in. They're invited into him. They're strangers and aliens and isolated no more. They're in the middle. I think this presents a few different challenges for us as a church. And so I'm going to end my time by listing them here. One, I think this is challenging us to think about how welcoming we are as the church at large. I think that one of the biggest witnesses that we have as a church is that we are people that outsiders, insiders are all thrown together by this common thread of worshiping Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that part of our testimony to the world is that the world looks into our churches, our gatherings, our homes and says, those people don't belong together. But there they are sitting side by side, worshiping Jesus. What is going on? You have people of different nationalities together, worshiping Jesus, people of different languages, people of different skin color, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds or education levels, people of different political opinions, people of different life history and traumas, There's people, again, that, that worldly speaking don't belong each other, and yet Jesus Christ has torn down this dividing wall of hostility that makes us separate into our different camps and says, no, in me? I draw you together and I take all these outsiders and bring them in. And you might be wondering, well, how does this fit with this whole outsider-insider? Well, here's just practically speaking how it always seems to play out. Every place, every town, every city, every state, every church usually has a majority people group. There's a majority language. There's a majority historical background. There's a majority, you know, in our churches, usually a lot of people have the same education level or from the same social class. If we are going to have it where people that don't belong together are worshiping Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords together, it's going to take the insider group, so to speak, the majority group, when they encounter folks that are different on the outside, so to speak, going to take them, inviting them in and saying, you belong here. You're part of us. You're not on the edge. You're not an outsider looking in to all these people that have everything in the common. You're with us. How do we do that? Oh, we get on our knees and pray. That's how. But let me give you a practical uh, start. I think we become a lot more intentional and how we welcome others, especially here at church. 
we are very strong as a church body in some ways, in many ways, perhaps. I think one of the strongest things about our church is the deep relationships that have formed and the way that people have poured into their lives. I see it every week when me, (laughs) this is going to be sad to say in this kind of sermon, but I usually am ready to leave church about 30 minutes after it ends. We get cleanup done and I'm hungry and I'm ready to go get some food and just decompress from a long day with morning and now evening. And most of you guys want to sit and visit with each other for like an hour after church is over. And it's awesome. It's an awesome quote-unquote problem to have. I know pastors that would kill to have congregations that want to be together like you guys want to be together. And I'm so thankful for that. Even though sometimes my flesh and my temperament says, I just want to get out of here. (laughs) So that is one of the strongest things about this church body. But for every strength, there's a flip side where that strength can become a, a weakness. And I believe that the flip side weakness of that is sometimes we can be so intent on interacting with the people we know and going deep with the people we know and love and just love getting to see maybe sometimes just once a week that we are totally oblivious when new visitors or people that haven't been here before, people that are maybe not quite as comfortable in this group and so they remain on the edge And we're so busy talking to our friends and going deep with the people we know that we just totally miss them. Guys, we are not a big church. It should never happen that somebody visits Vespers and no one speaks to them. But that has happened before. It's one of the most heartbreaking parts of my job is when I encounter people in town that have to tell me, like, Pastor, I came to your church and it was one of the coldest churches I've ever been to so sorry it shouldn't be like that and again i know it's not something i'm not trying to chide you for intentionally being mean to people or missing people i know it's because you're so focused on going deep with each other and yet my challenge to you if we are going to be anything like the christ who takes insiders and welcomes them in to be excuse me takes outsiders and welcomes them to be insiders we have to be somewhat intentional when we gather, not just to have our eyes solely focused on the people we know, but also to have our heads on a swivel looking for those that we can welcome in, extend the peace of Christ to, say, you belong here. Another challenge in a similar vein to that, when we are welcoming in those who quote unquote might be on the outside of our inside. I don't think it's enough to simply say, hey, the door's open for you to come join us. Sometimes what God's calling us to do is to actually go to them, learn about them, accommodate them, challenge ourselves to think in ways that meets them where they're at. So I know this is abstract. Let me give you an example. It's one that I used actually earlier this summer when we were talking about evangelism. I have a friend years ago invited me to this barbecue at the park for this Bible study he was trying to get started. There was a fellow that came from Saudi Arabia, a Muslim student at Chico State. And I remember being a sort of a fly on the wall for this conversation as they're chatting. My friend and this fellow that he had invited, my friend says, tell me about, I know at the end of Ramadan you have this feast called Eid. 
How does your family celebrate that? What does that mean? That student's whole face just lit up. This American knows something about my culture, my religion. He's asking me about what it means and how I celebrate it. The fact that my friend had done a little bit of research, just a little bit, enough to be able to ask a question that said, I want to know you. I want to know where you're from, where you're coming from. It made a world of difference. So what would that look like if we were willing to challenge ourselves, not just to say, they're going to come to me, but rather, how do I go to them? Like, I gave this example this morning up in paradise. Like, I'm from the South. I love Georgia football. And if you watched the Orange Bowl yesterday, you know I was, like, happy, but also embarrassed for the other team. It was, whew, it was a beatdown. But what if I was a visitor and I came in and you heard I was from Georgia and you said, Josh, I don't really care much about football, but tell me, how'd you get started loving Georgia? How's your team this year? Oh, my heart would melt. I'd be putty in your hands. Because you're willing to say, well, what, what is he like? Where is he coming from? That's how outsiders started to become insiders and how we as the body of Christ begin to reflect what he's showing us in his arrival at Christmas. I should have said this ages ago, but I'm going to say it now. If Jesus in his arrival invites the outsiders to become insiders through his presence, how much more should we as the body of Christ extend that same love? My final thought, though, is this, and I'm actually going to kind of turn the tables on things. Remember a second ago I said how the Magi wouldn't have thought of themselves as outsiders? That they were the sophisticated royal astrologers that had the right ear of the king, or the ear of the king, either ear. Like they would have thought of themselves as ultimate insiders. Now I'm going to do that for us because I've been talking about us, the congregation here, as the insiders that are wanting to extend welcome to those maybe on the outside. But here's what I know to be true. Most of you hearing this right now do not consider yourself to be an insider. Everybody thinks of themselves as an outsider. One of the most surreal conversations I've ever had in my life was like four or five years after I graduated high school, I ran into this fella, his name was Andrew, who was the most popular kid in my high school. He was the captain of the football team. All the girls loved him. He was like a great musician too. It was just unfair grossly unfair and we're talking and he has this vulnerable moment with me and he says you know my entire time in high school I felt like such a stranger that I was on the outside looking in with a lot of people that had so much in common and I didn't fit anywhere and I wanted to be like are you insane but he wasn't pulling my leg and I think what it's taught me starting then, but then all through college and seminary and now pastoring, that sometimes we, we look, we feel ourselves as the outsider and we look at all these people that have so much in common and just are able to relate to each other so easily and we say, they've got it, I don't. They're the insiders, I'm the outsider. And the irony is everybody is thinking that same thing. We all feel like the outsiders. For so many, so many reasons. 
For some of you, it's because you're single and you're looking in on marriages and families, especially around Christmas time and saying, why don't I have that? I'm such a, like a, I, I stick out like a sore thumb here when everybody else has that going on. Some of you are married, but you don't have kids yet, and you're seeing kids at Christmas time running around and say, we stick out so much because we don't have that. Some of you are coming to church struggling with doubt and skepticism and cynicism, and it looks like everybody else is just has rock-solid faith and raising their hands in worship, and they love the Lord so much, and you're saying, where do I fit into this? I could go on and on and on and on. There are a thousand upon thousand reasons how we feel like outsiders in the middle of our church family. But for every one of those reasons, Jesus Christ says, I'm the one that takes those who feel like they're on the outside and invites them in. You're with me. In fact, the most technically accurate name for a Christian is those who are in Christ. You are located in him. Your identity is now in him. Your record, like Pastor Brian was talking about, your moral record is his. The abundant life that belongs to him is now his, and you can never be a stranger if the God of the universe says, you are so close to me that you're said to be in my heart soul and my very life I know this time of year is one that is particularly hard for outsiders feeling like everybody else is inside except for us but the irony is that this is also the time of year when we have narratives like this in the Bible that tell us most pointedly that in Christ you are never an outsider never a stranger are in him and if you find the devil or your flesh or the world trying to taunt you with thoughts of being a stranger and someone on the edge not belonging I pray that you'll hear the voice of Jesus saying not me if I invited these magi that had no business being close to me in my earliest days to bow the knee to King invite all the outsiders, all the strangers, all the people that think that they are, have nothing in common with anybody else, I will make their home with me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that I, I feel like every year we, we, tr we try to preach about Christmas and celebrate Christmas and and find new ways to sort of capture the essence of Christmas. And every way we, every year we come away with just saying, we're hardly scratching the surface of all that you've accomplished in the, the coming of the Messiah and all the different implications it has for our life. God, I'm thankful that Jesus is like a well that's so deep we can't plumb the depths of it. And I pray that you'll continue to teach us over and over these new truths, especially this one that we've considered tonight, God, he's the one who calls us, calls us who feels like just the outsider to be in, to be close to him. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.